morning. Don't you love it when the sanctuary is all decorated for Christmas? I know I do. I think it looks amazing. I, I love uh, getting to sing Christmas and Advent songs as well. It's one of my favorite seasons of the whole year. I even wore Christmas socks today. They have little trees and snow people on them. So, all right. Usually, when the person who's preaching preaches, they just get up here and preach, right? They don't often uh, pull back the curtain at all and, and talk through the process of what writing a sermon looks like because it's generally understood that the person who's standing here has put in the work, has wrestled with the text, and has listened for some kind of cue from God on, on where to go with it. And that's great. That works all the time. Uh, but this week, uh, the sermon writing process itself is crucial for understanding how the text that Mackenzie read earlier became a sermon because it's kind of a strange passage. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend the first few minutes here pulling back that curtain just a little bit and, and sort of walking you through how we got to this place. So a while back, David and Dave and I met to talk through our ideas and our plans for worship and sermons during Advent. Uh, and now, if you'll let me, just a little aside about Advent. Advent is churchy language, right? But it basically is just the season of the church year uh, leading up to Christmas. It's the time of the year we focus on waiting. Uh, there are generally four Sundays in Advent, and the kind of most common connection points during Advent are hope, love, joy, and peace, right? So that's kind of where we find ourselves now. This is the first week of Advent. And so the three of us were talking in David's office, and David tells us about this theme idea he has, love came down. And so we're thinking, you know, love came down, it connects with Advent and waiting and, and coming of God into the world. It's a great theme. And so we're going to take the different Sundays of Advent and, and focus on love came down. And then this particular week is through the lens of hope, right? So uh, then we work on picking our text. What are we going to preach about? What, what scripture fits with where we're going and all of that. And so sometimes you pick the scripture first, sometimes you pick the theme first, but usually they all have this sort of way of working together to create a message that matters and is relevant and all of that. So we're picking scriptures and we start in the usual places for Advent texts, which are the Gospels and the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, of course, is a prophet. It was called by God to speak truth into chaos. And even though all of his prophecies had an immediate meaning for the people he was talking to, many of them also point forward to the coming of the Messiah, right? So it's a great place to go for Advent texts. And so for this first Sunday in Advent, love came down through the lens of hope. We ended up settling on Isaiah chapter 64, which was read earlier. And, and here's why. I want, you to, I want to reread the first verse of this chapter. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so the mountains would quake at your presence. That's pretty good, right? Yeah. So then in verse 3, it says again, When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. That's pretty perfect. We were excited. We were like, all right, love came down. It's just like it's got to end the scripture. It's pretty, pretty great. Well, maybe. Um, I don't, if you've ever explored the book of Isaiah much, you might know what's going on around this passage. So in, in the chapters leading up to this, the people have messed up. Their world is in chaos 
This part of the book Isaiah is generally thought to come after God's people, the Israelites, are back in Jerusalem following exile in Babylon where they had been for generations. And so things are crazy. People have turned away from God. The people who still do religious rituals only do it out of a sense of obligation and so they can check off those boxes on their holy to-do list. It's, it's not a good situation. And so God sends Isaiah in to challenge the people and to remind them that it's not about checklist religion. It's about giving life to your faith. It's about a connection with God. It's about loving others and justice and mercy, all the things that you know, God usually sends prophets to say. And so then chapter 64 is the people's response to God. It's a prayer. And, and the prayer starts with the people admitting that they've missed the point. They admit that they've messed up. And so it's looking good, right? It looks like, yeah, love's going to come down. Things are going to balance out. Everything's going to be okay. But then the second part of verse 5, it says, But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. The NIV says it this way. It says, but when we continued to disobey you, you became angry with us. How can we be saved? Essentially, they're saying to God, yeah, we messed up, but then you gave up on us. You abandoned us. We had no hope. And then later in verse 7, the people accuse God of hiding God's face from them. So we've got this people whose world is in chaos. They got caught up solely in the ritual and routine of checklist religion. And when God wanted more, they accused God of turning away. But really this whole time, it was the people who weren't bringing life into the world around them. Some kind of Christmas text this is turning out to be, right? Essentially what we had done in our worship planning meeting was chosen a passage that's full of finger pointing and blaming of others and religion that has no life. Not to mention what appeared to be very little hope. And so while I was preparing for the sermon, I got to a place where I was ready to give up on this passage. I even went in and talked to Dave about it for a while, and we sort of talked through what it might look like if I just picked a whole different passage the week before we do all this. And it felt to me like we had two really great puzzle pieces, Love Came Down and Hope, that fit together nicely. And then we had another great piece that just happened to come from a completely different puzzle. And so... I sat with it, and I was ready to give up, and then Tori and I went to the mountains, which was a planned trip already, and uh, it was all hazy outside, you know, from the the wildfires and all that, so we were inside for a little bit of the first day, and I was looking at this and working on the sermon, and one of the biggest places where God comes into the sermon writing process is in this moment of frustration, and so I was looking at the, the, the passage through the lens of love came down and hope. And I just kind of got this sense that I needed to flip that. That I needed to use the passage as the lens 
to see love came down in hope. Does that make sense? Instead of the other way around. And, and the passage obviously is the most important thing. Uh, so we start there and then we'll see what happens with the theme later. So if we take this passage and we temporarily step aside from our focus on hope and our theme of love came down, we're left with a passage that actually has a lot to say to us. There are some obvious parallels between the world in Isaiah and our world and our lives right now in 2016. Our world, especially our country, is in chaos. We just lived through one of the most volatile, angry political seasons ever, and it still doesn't look like there's any end in sight. No matter what side you're on, things are unbalanced, divided, and unfocused. So many people, myself included, and probably you too, are looking for hope in the midst of all of this mess. But at the end of the day, whether we're crying out to God or looking for help from politics or both, just like the people in Israel, we all still seem to find it easier to point fingers than to take ownership. Some people are pointing their fingers at God, some point across political aisles, and some people are just pointing at anyone who's not themselves. But really, it's on all of us. Now, I don't, I don't want this to come down really heavy, but it should be challenging. What I'm saying here is important, and I hope you'll, you'll hear me out. We may or may not be directly responsible for the mess, but as Christians, we all do have a responsibility to help with cleanup. And that's a calling we cannot ignore. The last time I preached, I talked about the broken systems in our country that have created generations of oppression for a lot of people. And I talked about how Middletown is in a position not only to address surface level needs, but also to speak truth into those broken systems. That labor, that mission, that calling, that's not political work. That's people work. Do what you will with your vote, but remember that people will always be more important than politics. I believe that. I think Jesus believes that. And so I don't know about you, but I'm done pointing fingers. I'm going to step up, take ownership for my own crap, and I'm going to work hard to speak the truth into the chaos of the world around me. And frankly, there's plenty of work to be done. And I'm asking you to join me in that work. We've heard so much about politics lately, but this is not about politics. This is about people. Our world feels overwhelming and stressful, and believe me when I say that there are millions of people in our country who feel that even more than we do. But there's hope. Just like with the people in Israel, there's hope. God wants more from us than our checklist faith or to put it all in the basket of the political system. God asks us to live 
out our faith. I mean, let's be real. Love came down through Jesus not so that we'd have more rules to follow, but so that we could see the impact of a lived faith. The people in Israel were living in chaos, only going through the religious motions, and they were looking to blame anyone else for their own problems. They didn't get it. But still, even in the midst of that, listen to what God said to them. This is the first two verses of chapter 65. God says, I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. I think that's amazing. Even with all the chaos in their world and with all the people continuing to be distracted by things that matter less, like maybe politics, God was still waiting. And so in this season of Advent, where we practice waiting, what if, for this moment in time, just like it was in Israel, what if it's not us who's waiting? What if it's God who's doing the waiting? What if God is waiting on us to stop pointing fingers and to live out our faith? We live in chaotic unbalanced times and now more than ever we need to live our faith love came down with Jesus but if we live our faith and run to the open arms of God that love will continue to come down with us that's where the hope is in this last week if you were here you remember David used the story of Moses to ask one big question do you want to hear from God Essentially, he was asking, are you willing to step out of your safe life in Midian for God's adventure in Egypt? Now, I'll be honest. I struggle with this question. On the one hand, being comfortable has a lot of appeal. There's my family, my routine, my house, all of those things. Plus, going through the religious motions is a whole lot easier and a whole lot safer than actually living out my faith. And if I'm really honest, I can stand up here and say uh, justifying being comfortable because I work in a church. I've already said yes to God's call. But on the other hand, the God we serve is a God of the oppressed, a God of justice, and a God of adventure. Being safe And being comfortable is in direct opposition to God's call on our lives. Do you want to hear from God? Because God is calling us on an adventure. Now again, uh, a confession moment for me. I've never really been one for adventures. I'll read adventure books. I'll watch adventure movies. Uh, When I was growing up, I I was a kid, and it was before iPads and cell phones. It was back in the day when the Internet would squeal at you every time you logged into the modem. 
all that stuff. So we played outside all the time. And myself and the kids in the neighborhood, we'd ride our bikes, we'd play home run derby, we'd hide and go seek in the dark, we'd do all that. But none of those were really adventures. I remember I went to like one Boy Scout meeting. And I don't even remember what the meeting was about, but I do remember that everyone there was so excited because their camping trip was coming up soon, and they were pumped. They were talking about cooking their food on the fire and sleeping on the ground and doing other camping things like pooping in holes or whatever it is that you do. And I remember thinking, y'all are nuts. I, I have... I have no desire to freeze all night on the dirt. I definitely don't want to eat burnt hot dogs off a wire coat hanger. And you know what? I like bathrooms. (laughs) Adventure has never really been my thing. I like being comfortable. It's safe. It's easy. I can mind my own business. I can store up for myself and my family. Even though... Isaiah 64 isn't about adventure like the story of Moses. It does remind us that God still expects more from us than finger-pointing and routine religion in our comfortable bubbles. When I first read this passage, I couldn't see the connection. The people's prayer is blaming God for their own problems. Where's the hope in that? But as I wrestled with the text, I was shown that even more than connecting to our theme, this passage is speaking to us. The people in the text don't really get it. God's been there with open arms all along, and they've stopped looking. It was inevitable that at some point they'd start pointing fingers. And then they missed their call for more, their call to adventure, and they miss their hope. So again, I don't know about you, but I'm done pointing fingers. There's a lot of things in this world that I have no control over, but I do control me. And I do control my response to the calling that God has given me in this chaotic, unbalanced world. You also have the ability to control your response to God's call in your life. And there's power in that. So normally in a sermon, this is where I would give examples of things that God might be calling you to do. But today and in this season and in this chaotic moment, that feels presumptuous to me. So instead, I'm going to read you a series of things that I feel are my calling from God in this world. My call to pay attention. My call to be uncomfortable. Some of these things you may resonate with and some you may not. 830 and 950, kind of a mixed bag. This is my call. It does not have to represent you, and goodness knows I am not speaking for the entirety of Middletown Christian Church, nor do I want to. And just like always, the sermon is the start of the conversation, not the end. And so if you want to talk more, I'd love to get coffee one day and get to know you better anyway. 
So as I stop pointing fingers and God gets my attention more and more, my call from God in this unbalanced world looks like making sure that every single one of our youth knows how much I love them and how happy I am even when I get, when I get to see them, even when they fall asleep in the sermon. And that whether they're here every week or every once in a while, they matter. My call looks like speaking out and walking with my friends and neighbors who are black and who are constantly abused and targeted by the systems in our country. If all lives matter is the goal, we cannot reach that point until we all work to love and respect and listen to people of color and until black lives matter. My call looks like never giving up the fight for women's equality, whether that's pay or job positions or educational opportunities or anything else. My call looks like standing up for millions of Muslim Americans and billions of Muslims around the world who are peaceful, loving people. My call looks like working for equal rights and opportunities for our friends and family and neighbors in the LGBTQ community who are beautiful, perfect creations of God. My call looks like opening doors and opportunities for folks with all kinds of disabilities in our world, disabilities that you can see and those you can't see. My call looks like embracing immigrants and refugees as family, and I don't care what their legal status is. My call looks like fighting to end the death penalty in our country because no one deserves to be murdered, especially not by the state. Remember, Jesus was murdered by the state. Now, that's not everything, but it's a good start. It's plenty to make everybody in the room uncomfortable. And I'm not claiming to be great at all of these things either. Your list may not be identical to mine, but that doesn't change the fact that God is waiting with open arms for you to stop pointing fingers and to speak truth into chaos. And then together, our call looks like following the teachings of Jesus to love, to welcome, and to show mercy to all people. Our call looks like being faithful to God, loving radically, and working for justice. Our call looks like remembering that God has an adventure for all of us that will take us out of our comfort zone and ask us to cross boundaries. Being a Christian is not about being comfortable. Our call looks like emphasizing people over everything else. So let's stop pointing fingers. Let's stop letting the outside factors distract us from things that matter. There's hope because God is already waiting for us to run full speed into the people work that God is already doing in the world around us. The people in Israel didn't always get it. We don't always get it. But we have an opportunity in front of us. What's your call? How will you bring hope? God's arms are waiting.